we're in a little mini-series, and we're doing a mini-series to try to familiarize you and give you guys a chance to actually weigh in on a mission vision statement that we're developing as a church for our next season of life together as a church. And this is something that we feel like is, is, is pretty well honed, but we're not like putting the final polish on it without bringing it to you guys first. So we're talking you through this. We're pretty sure this is what we want to, what we want to focus on in terms of our verbiage, how to envision each other, how to help ourselves make choices between this and that. Um, but we wanted to bring you into the conversation before we, we roll it out officially by the time we get to El Shaddai. Um, and so, Everything that we're doing right now in this series, this little mini-series called Forward, is about trying to understand what the implications are, both theologically in God's Word. Hopefully we'll be able to see this vision mission statement and say, oh, that reminds me, that I know where that is in the Bible. I know how that makes a sense with Scripture. This isn't just something that... Um, this, these guys are just throwing at us that doesn't have biblical roots. You know, you're going to be able to see and say, this has biblical roots. I know where to go to understand what this means. And then also, what are the implications for us as a church family going forward together? What does it mean to live this out? Um, so w- that mission vision statement right now reads like this. LHCC, Living Hope Community Church, exists to, we have a slide for this, make disciples of Jesus Christ who know God deeply. And share him passionately. Can you guys say this together with me? Living Hope Community Church exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ who know God deeply and share him passionately. Now, many, many churches have these kinds of mission vision statements. And a lot of times they'll change throughout the life of the church. That's all okay. The important thing is that it reflects God's heart. In some way or another, it really reflects God's heart in a, in a broad way so that it really captures the essence of what Jesus wants from us. But it's also something we can understand and get our hands around to help us think about what we're doing, why we're doing some things, why we're not doing other things. And as I said last week, this mission vision statement comes from two specific passages. Most of all, it comes from Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission. I'm not going to go through these passages exhaustively because I did that in the intro last week. But that's the Great Commission where God, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them all I've commanded. Um, and and I'm with you always. And we talked about the fact that Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and earth for this mission to become successful for us. So he says, I got everything that there is in the universe at my disposal. Go do this thing. And then he says at the end of it, and I'm with you forever. I'm with you as long as you're on this mission. Every time you're on the mission, I'm with you. And we talked about an implication of that last week is that if you go canvassing next week and you're with Luke and he's talking to that person about the Lord, Jesus is right there with you, doing that with you, helping you along the ways. And if you're a care group next week, and you're talking to your sister in the Lord about a real struggle she's having. You're trying to make a disciple of her. You're trying to teach her who Jesus is and help her follow Jesus. Jesus is right there with you. So this disciple-making call, it's for us to make disciples of those who don't know Jesus. And when Jesus says, teaching them all I've commanded, it's for us to continually help mature the disciples that have already come. When Paul planted a church, he came back to the church When he evangelized the city, he birthed a baby church and he came back to that baby church, right? He did what Jesus says. He baptized, he brought new believers into existence through the grace of God, and then he came back and taught them all that Jesus commanded. So this idea of making disciples, it isn't just about outward mission, it's about inward mission. It's about both things. 
And that's what we're called to do. And what we're trying to bring people to, by God's grace, only by God's power, is this thing called eternal life. And that's where the second part comes from, that we want to know God deeply, right? We want to make disciples who know God deeply. Jesus says that's the whole purpose of our existence. He said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life. Life is a relationship with the eternal God. That's what life is. And that's what we're trying to to help people through the process of discipling one another, through the process of bringing people who don't know Jesus to the lost. We're trying to bring them eternal life, which is having a relationship with God. We said last week, that's why eternal life isn't a time. It's not a place. You don't wait for heaven to get eternal life. You don't have to go to heaven to get eternal life. Eternal life is in you whenever you come to Jesus Christ. And whenever he comes into your life, when you become known to him and he becomes known to you, as a real person, and you as a real person to him, that's eternal life. It has started. It will never end. It will only grow more and more in eternity. Last week, though, we really focused on that disciple word, right? And as I said during the prayer time, we really focused on the exclusive claims of Jesus over our lives. We, we talked about the fact that Jesus says, you have to love me more than anyone and anything if you want to be my disciple. That's the standard. You have to love me more than your own life. That's the standard. We talked about the fact that in light of that standard, we all fall short and we need his grace. And he provides it. But he provides it so that we can reach progressively. Never perfectly, but progressively we can meet God and love him more than other things for our lives and grow in that. That's what discipleship is. It's following Jesus first and foremost above all things. We talked about that. And we talked a little bit at the end about why we can do that and why we do that. And that's part of our second phrase here. It's to know him, to know him deeply. So as I prayed about, you know, today I was like, okay, God, we're going to move from make disciples because that's the first part. Can we put the mission statement up there again? Make disciples is the first part who know him deeply. So last week we talked about make disciples. This week we're going to talk about know him deeply. And I said, Lord, we did make disciples. Now we're going to do know him deeply. Last week we focused on discipleship and the first and foremost call of God. And now we're going to focus on knowing you and as i did that i felt like god in my prayer in my internal sense of what the holy spirit was saying i felt like he was saying not so quickly not so quickly these things are all part of the same piece and and, and he wanted me to not let go of this discipleship claim this loyalty this affection this first above all things call that he has on our lives and and as i thought about that i was led to a passage where that call to leave all things and to make him first and foremost, first and foremost is obviously and clearly dynamically connected to what it means to know him. That those things go together. They're, they're of a piece with each other. And I found a passage that was on my heart that connected these things. And so it's Philippians 3. So if you have your Bibles... Read with me Philippians 3. We're going to read 7 through 11. And if you don't have your Bibles, just listen to me. And we'll, we'll go, Logan, it's, you do, should have a slide for Philippians 3. Specifically, I want to focus on verses 7 through 11. We might talk about other parts of it, but 7 through 11. So please listen to me as we listen to Philippians 3, 7 through 11. These are the very words of God. But whatever were gains to me... I now consider loss 
for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. God, there's so much here. I look at these passages and Lord, they both encourage me and they evaluate me. Lord, let your grace be very thick and very heavy upon us this morning. Let your mercy, your saving mercy, surround us. Let your gospel protect us. Let your glory capture us. Let your affection draw us. Lord, I want to I pray this very loud. I feel in my heart I want to pray it very loud. Lord, do mighty works today in our midst through your word. Please. Speak to us, Lord. I can speak. I can say the words I've prepared here. It means zero. Potentially, it means worse than zero. Unless you speak. Use me. Go around me. Speak to our hearts. Speak to my heart, Lord. I want to leave loving you more. With more joy. With more stability in you. I pray Lord for this for, for myself. I pray this for all of my brothers and sisters. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Now we don't have a ton of time. And I might stop in the middle of this. And close us. Because I don't want to keep you guys as late as last week. And we might come back to this next week. Second part. But I hope even as we read that. You're able to say wow I, I see that. I see that reality between renouncing, leaving all things. Why? To know Jesus. I see that connection between being a disciple who loves God and hates his own life and knowing Jesus. It's right, it's right there. I hope you're able to see that. If you weren't, I hope you're able to see it as we go. So a little backdrop here. The, the heat of the moment here is Paul is defending the gospel in the lives of the church in Philippi from legalists. These were people who were very religious. They considered themselves, and they probably were outwardly very law-abiding Jews, 
who were coming into the church there in Philippi and telling them, like, similar to what happened in Galatia, if you really want to be saved, the issue here is salvation. It's not whether or not you, you keep the law. It's not whether you're circumcised or not. Paul said neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. You can keep the law, you cannot keep the law. The folks at El Shaddai are more interested in the Jewish laws than we are. The issue isn't whether or not you keep the law or not in terms of the Jewish ritual. The issue is what do you believe saves you? What do you really believe saves you? Is it your obedience? Is it your performance? Is it Jesus Christ? And they were telling these people, you need Jesus. These, these Paul called them the Judaizers. You need Jesus and you need to perfectly keep. You need to keep the Mosaic law. You need to get circumcised. You need to follow these Sabbaths. You need to follow these first day, feast days. If you want to be saved, you have to have Jesus and the Mosaic law. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. It was, it's, it's always about trusting Jesus. And so he's doing that. And so what he does is he, he right before this, this passage, he lists all these incredible achievements. So when he says, whatever were gains to me, I consider them loss. I consider them garbage. He's talking about this long list of personal achievements that were, from an outward perspective, a lot of them were amazing. A lot of them were good. Paul had just listed all his incredible, formidable achievements as a Jewish man. Not just his achievements, his bloodline. He was born in a, in a, in a true Jewish family, the tribe of Benjamin. He was, according to the law, perfect, he said. And I don't think Paul just meant he was perfect at getting his hair cut the right ways or wearing the phylacteries or the hems of his garment. I think he meant he was perfect in, in being devoted to God, being devoted to the Sabbath, being devoted to listen to the scriptures, being devoted religiously. He was perfect. He, he always had his quiet time. He always went to church. He always tithed over 10%. He did all the right things. He did them perfectly. He gave more money to the poor than most. He was, outwardly, he would have looked like he had like 10 World Vision kids on his refrigerator. His bank account would have looked like a guy who just wanted to give his money to the Lord and to the poor. If we're talking about the secular world, if we remove this from like, you know, the religious world, we just look at what, in our country, he might have said something like, Listen, my father was a Kennedy and my mother was a Bush. I was varsity QB in high school. I married the homecoming queen who was also, by the way, this woman I married, a doctor for the Red Cross. I went to Harvard undergrad and Yale for law school. And then I went to the Peace Corps to serve starving kids in Africa. And then I came home and just to broaden the world esteem he might get i came home and i wanted to take some time off from all that for my hidden career so i started an alt rock band with great musical integrity our first and only album we won a grammy for record of the year we gave all the proceeds to organic farming my next endeavor was to study peace accord diplomacy at oxford and stanford and i joined the barack obama george w bush joint venture to end aids in africa we raised $7.3 billion from 14 nations in five years. I ran for the New York State Senate, and I won. I served on the Armed Services Committee, developed successful plans for defeating ISIS. I co-authored bipartisan bills that brought immigration 
and health care reform acceptable to Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi together. I did all this. That might be a worldly way of saying what Paul was saying, you know. And then he says this. He says this essentially in verse 7 and 8. He says, and then I met Jesus. And in comparison, it was dung, dung, dung. Now, dung is horse manure. Paul used a word that I can't say in church. He didn't use dung word. He used a Greek word that was vulgar. He used profanity. I mean, every, most scholars I've read, and I've heard this for years, I read it again this week. He used, I think the word is skabalon. But it, it, it's, it's on, you know, Greek spray paint on the walls, graffitis in, in these cities. It's the S word. <laughs> Paul used it. It's, it's in the Bible. He didn't use it very often. I think he used it two times in the whole Bible. He was trying to say dramatically what this world has to offer and what I accumulated in this world, good and bad, compared to knowing Jesus Christ, comparatively speaking, I don't have him. It's not coming through him. It's the S word. And I know some of you people, if not everybody in here, understands that. Your best friendship without Jesus. Your best musical endeavor without Jesus. Your best academic achievement without Jesus. It's the S word. When you get to know him, comparatively speaking, and you get a taste of who he is, you look at that thing, and if you're in your right mind, you would say, would I trade this for him? Are you kidding me? Would I trade life, real life, and real joy, and real strength, and real love, and real holiness of my creator who fills everything so that I can, for that? Compared to Jesus, it's the S word. Paul met someone in Jesus Christ who made him want to renounce everything. And he speaks of two broad categories here. First, he says, all that I gained. Specifically, he's talking about that righteousness, that religious righteousness that Judaism gave him, that the Judaism of that day. There was nothing wrong with Judaism, but they had, they had basically made a relationship with God contingent, not on trusting God, not on trusting God's mercy, not on seeking to follow him at the heart passionately. They had made it contingent upon First and foremost, their obedience to God. God was someone they could barter with. If I do these things, I can get this stuff. You remember the second son in the prodigal son story? How angry he was with his father. There was no love for his father. He was basically, when his father was merciful to his little brother, he said to his dad, I have done everything for you. My whole life, I've done everything for you. And you did not give me dot, 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 dot. I wanted the party. I wanted the calf. I wanted the lamb. I wanted that coat. I wanted that ring. You didn't give me. What did his father said? He said, everything I have is yours. Including me. 
me. To the son, it didn't mean anything. He wanted the father's stuff. He wanted the father's stuff. And a life of achievement, a life of religious prestige. He wanted that. And Paul said, no, that is, that is dung compared to knowing him. My, my moral performance, my keeping my quiet times right and my tithing right and my giving my money right and my, without knowing you, without doing it for you because I love you and because you love me, without a real, really a relationship with you, it's dung. And Paul said, no, I want to trade that in for a real relationship with you that comes through your love for me, that comes for your, through your life given over for me, that comes from me hanging my hope not on what I can do or get out of you, but on your heart of mercy and love. Paul lived what we might call, for those of you who are old-timers here, a cross-centered life. He lived a gospel-centered life. He never left the gospel of God's grace for him. In his last letter to Timothy, Paul said, this is his last letter. It's filled with the gospel. He says to Timothy, remember Christ Jesus raised from the dead. This is my gospel. I'm going home. You remember him. This is the most important thing. Paul said, I'm putting away my religiosity that I might gain Christ and have a righteousness that comes not from my performance, not from my glory and my awesomeness, but comes from his mercy in the cross. I want a real relationship with Jesus, Paul said. And I want a real relationship with Jesus that comes because he offers it to me. He says, come, without money, without cost, come. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm meek and gentle of heart. I will give you rest for your souls. Paul says, I want that, he said. I, I saw that and I wanted that more than anything. But the dynamics of that relationship, the character of that relationship, if you really want that relationship, it involves something besides trading your fake religion for God. It also involves pursuing him first by his power. C.S. Lewis said, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Paraphrasing him. He gives us grace. But the grace he gives us is so that we might be perfect. <laughs> and when you hear perfect, when you hear holy, when you hear obedience, if you don't hear love me, at the core of that, you're not hearing it at all. That's what perfection is. That's what obedience is. That's what holiness is. It's loving him. It's loving him. With everything, including your affections. That's why we need mercy and grace daily, because we don't love them as we ought. But that's what it means. Paul said, 
not only have I traded my religion for a real relationship, he said, I've lost all things. I've lost all things. Didn't mean he was perfect. Didn't mean those things he lost didn't try to grab him and try to become again the idols of his heart or take over from God in terms of the first place of his heart. But it meant that he made it, he made it a connection. He understood when Jesus calls me, he's calling me to follow him. When Jesus says, do you want me? Follow me. He means follow me. This takes us back from the discipleship definition from last week. Paul renounced. He says, I consider everything a loss. Paul renounced valuing his life more than Jesus. And why did he do this? Why did he do this? Why did he feel like this was a wise course of action? He said, because everything else is done compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We'll say it again. Paul had found something better. God had opened his eyes to the beauty and worth of Jesus, and it was worth losing everything for to him. When he saw it, he knew. Matthew thirteen forty four. Listen to these words. This is what Jesus says about his kingdom, who he is. Listen to these words. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, growing up as a Catholic kid, I heard that and I immediately went to like, you got to buy salvation. you got to earn it. you got to pay a price for it. you got to go and work hard and you'll get saved. And like somebody, another preacher I heard this week, I never thought about what's at the heart of this passage. What really motivates this? Because I don't think it's about earning your salvation or buying salvation. You can't. What's at the very heart of this? Listen, what motivates this man? He finds a treasure hidden in a field. He finds it and he covers it up so nobody else can steal it from him. Why does he do that? Well, it's right there. Then in his joy. In his joy, God showed him who he was and what did it taste like? Taste and see that the Lord is. Oh, it was good. It was good. It gave him joy. Real joy. He said, I don't want anything more than this. That's what motivates anything else that comes after. He sells all that he has and buys that field. Everything else he considers a loss compared to keeping that joy in his friendship with the king of heaven. The point here is not buying eternal salvation. The point here is that when you see God in a saving way, you see him as beautiful and treasurable. And it brings joy from the deepest part of your soul. And you end up longing for him because he becomes your deepest satisfying joy. How does David say in Psalm 42 about simple religion? The deer pants for streams of water. My soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? How does he say in Psalm 84? 
How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That can involve religious things, but it is so much more than religion. How did David say that? Because Jesus is a real person. He really meant what he said. When he said, I'll give you rest. I'm gentle. I'm humble. How many of you would like a Lord? Would like a boss? Would like a king? To rule your life. And at his core. He's gentle and he's humble and he loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. And everything he does, he does for your good. Even when it looks bad. And everything he does, he does out of a heart of gentleness and a heart of humility. Even when he allows life to scream, even when he turns over tables, Deep in his heart, it's still a place of being for you. Even when he tears down the temple of your idols and leaves not one stone upon another unturned. At his core, he is for you more than any other person has ever been for you. You know, gentleness isn't always speaking softly, speaking nice words. The biblical definition of gentleness is having power that you're not controlled by, but you control it and you use it for the right purposes and you keep it in its sheath when it needs to be kept in its sheath. And he knows how to do that in your life. And yes, following him might involve him taking things away from you that you thought you could never, ever, ever imagine living without. Oh, God does what we would feel as the most painful things. He takes children. He takes our health. He takes our spouses. But when he takes it and you belong to him, it's coming from the heart of a father who is committed to you so much that for a short time he's willing to allow you to suffer because he is unwilling for you to miss an eternity of joy. He is willing to allow you to have pain because he is unwilling for you to go without the greater joy of knowing him so truly and really that everything else when you when you recover your senses everything else is is losing it is worth it because you know God better and he's the best thing. He's the only, only true good thing in the universe and he's not willing to let you settle for things that aren't, that aren't good for you.
I need to close and I just need to pray with you all for just a moment because I want to make sure I use this last few minutes wisely. Would you pray for me and with me as I uh, seek to land this plane, Lord willing, in a place God would want? Lord, I pray that where you would want this to close, Lord, I wouldn't try to force these pages in. I wouldn't try to step away from them. I just pray you would lead. Okay, I feel like I'm supposed to do this, especially because I don't want to. (laughs) Uh, Not always the case. Sometimes God leads me to do things I want to do. But this time, I think the Lord would just have me just rehearse with you guys something that John Piper wrote in a little article he wrote. Uh, In this section, the article is called How to Count Everything as Loss. How to Count Everything as Loss. If you like this and you want this, I'll send this out to you this week. Brian? You want it? Okay. Okay, maybe that's the sign that I needed. God was speaking. Can I just say one thing I'm growing in my confidence in right now, just as an aside? Um, The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. I've always believed that. I've always experienced that. I've always known that. I feel like I'm becoming refreshed in that in a deeper way. Um. That was probably an unhelpful tangent, but if you're interested in knowing more about that, I'd be happy to talk with you as well about that. We'll probably get to that in this series for sure, maybe next week. In everyday practical terms, John Piper writes this section, how to count everything as lost. In everyday practical terms, what does it mean to do this? It means at least these four things. Number one, renouncing all. Counting all as lost means that if we must choose between Christ and anything else, we will choose Christ. Renouncing all, counting all as lost, means that if we must choose between Christ and anything else, we will choose Christ. And he explains, that is, even though God does not bring us to the crisis of either Christ or this, or at every point, nevertheless, we're ready and have resolved in our hearts that if the choice must be made, we will choose Christ. If it's between Christ and beginning a relationship with someone who doesn't love Christ, a romantic relationship, that's obvious. I'm going to choose Christ. If it's between Christ and a third glass of wine in two hours, you're going to choose Christ. I mean, very possibly. I'm getting into some science that I'm not probably equipped to get into, but for me that would be, I believe, would be important. Number two, renouncing all. Counting all as loss means that we will deal with everything in ways that draw us nearer to Christ so that we may gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way we relate to everything. Two, renouncing all, counting all as loss means that we will deal with everything in ways that draw us nearer to Christ so that we gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way we relate to everything. That is, we will embrace everything pleasant by being thankful to Christ and we will endure everything hurtful by being patient through Christ. Oh, 
Now, I would just want to interlude here, and if I was with John Piper sitting next to him, I would say, John Piper, can you please also include a lot of verses from the Psalms where David is going through hard things and he cries out in pain. He doesn't look very patient. He doesn't sound very patient. But he's working to get there, right? He's taking his pain to God. He's not blaming God for his pain, but he's, maybe even sometimes he might be. How long, O oh Lord, how long? But he's not saying it in a way that he's judging God, saying, God, you're evil. He's saying, God, help me. Help me through this. So I think enduring everything that hurtful by being patient through Christ, it oftentimes means being on a road to get to patience by not giving into your flesh anger, vengeance, bitterness, but going to God and saying, God, please help. Please help. And I think David and the Psalms bear that out. But I like what he says here. We'll deal with things in a way that draws nearer to Christ. <laughs> there are times this week where I, I've just I've just had to say no to some of my favorite things because it's just becoming excessive. I like um, I like sports chat rooms, and I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> like, I, I would never have imagined saying that five years ago, but I do, and I, I like talking about sports and stats and our heroes in the sports field. And there are times this week where I've just had to say, God, help me. I, I think this is an okay thing, but I think it's becoming, I think it's drawing me away from you. I think it's, I think I care about you less because I'm here. I don't think, you know, it's, it's very subjective. Got to, and that can be a very tricky place too. But in my walk with the Lord, I, I feel like the Lord is saying, Albert, turn it down. Come away with me for a while. And that makes a lot of sense because he loves me. He wants to be with me and he doesn't want that chat room to become bigger than him in my heart. I even feel like at times God says, I want you to have this, but I want you to have it in a healthy way. And if you keep on doing this with it, I'm going to have to take it away. A good friend of my sister in the Lord, she was crazy about soccer. Some of you guys know her. I won't say her name, but she, she felt like God was telling her several times Pull back on the soccer to make more time for me. Pull back on the soccer. Don't quit soccer. Just give me more. I need more in this season. She just had a sense that that was what God was saying. We can talk about how you get to that sense, different ways, counsel, friends, the word, indwelling Holy Spirit speaking. And she basically refused. And then she hurt herself really bad. And she felt like God had said to her, if you don't, I'm going to have to take this away from a while, from you for a while. Because you're not trusting me. I'm gentle. I created this game. I want you to enjoy it. But it's becoming your God. We've got to limit this a little bit here. She said no. God said, I love you, girl. Her knee went out. Lately, God's been healing her knee and bringing her back into it. I think he's just a good dad. He knows that she's probably grown enough. She's ready to have the thing he wants to give her. Just doesn't want it to become bigger than him and consumer. Number three, renouncing all, counting all as lost, means that we will seek to deal with the things of this world in ways that show that they are not our treasure, but rather that Christ is our treasure. Again, this is tricky. When I sit down to have a cheeseburger that's delicious, I don't think God is telling me, don't enjoy that cheeseburger. <laughs> you know, I just think that's that's a weird fake piety. I think 
But what's interesting, and you take a verse like 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll get to that chapter, Lord willing. It's all about marital love. And Paul says some interesting things in there in the same place. On one hand, he says, if you are burning with lust, get married. And we'll talk about all the ramifications. Okay, so don't like do that today. But his point is like, God put this sexual desire in you. He made you a sexual being. He gave it to you. Go use it. I know some people who would say, no, you got to be celibate for 30 more years. You know, sometimes that's sovereignly all God allows. But what Paul says is if you, if you have a huge desire to have sexual fulfillment and you can marry someone who's godly and, and you guys can get married and experience that intimacy, do it. And almost in the same breath, a few verses later, Paul says, whoever's married in this world should act like they're not married. Of course, he doesn't mean don't live together, don't cohabitate together, don't be intimate together. What he means is God is bigger than that marriage. And and you've got to live in the tension between embracing that marriage, living in it, and having God be first. Live, live as if if God took it away or if you, if, you know, live as if this isn't your home and your heart's first desire isn't set. On this perfect marriage. and this perfect relationship. Live as if you enjoy the marriage. God's given it to you. It's a grace gift. But fight to have your first love be Jesus. And your first hope be being with him. And his appearing. And your resurrection in him. And a lot of times our marriages make that kind of easy. <laughs> because they can be tough. A lot of times we don't have to hear Paul say. Want Jesus more than your spouse, you can feel like, Jesus, I really do want you more than my spouse. I think my wife would have to say that a lot more than I ever have to say that because it's harder for her to be married to me than it is for me to be married to her. But Piper expands, we will hold things loosely. We hold things loosely. We hold them. We have the burger. But if it stinks that day or it's... (laughs) If they didn't cook it well, I'm not going to get irritated and be angry about it. And we're going to share things generously because we hold them loosely. And we ascribe value to things in relation to Christ. We will seek to live the paradox of 1 Corinthians 7. Let Christians buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. That deserves its own sermon. It's hard to understand. But I think it all connects to this thing that we are in the world, but we're not of it. We enjoy the things of this world, but they're not our gods. They're not our greatest hope. They're not our greatest enjoyment. And we have to live in that tension. But the Holy Spirit came to give us that very ability. So don't give up on that hope. If that seems like a strange, hard thing for you, guess what? God's Spirit is able to give you the power to enjoy what he's created, but to want him more. To half the summer, enjoy the time with your family and take that lesson and that sports activity. And for the second half of the summer, go on the missions trip to the DR and share the gospel and build houses because he's worth it. He's given you power to receive the salary that you have and enjoy things that you can buy, but give it away to the poor in generous amounts that show that it's not your ultimate treasure. Number four, 
renouncing all, counting all as a loss, means that if we lose any or all of the things this world can offer, we will not lose our joy or our treasure or our life because Christ is our joy and our treasure and our life. Renouncing all means that if we lose any or all the things this world can offer, we will not lose our joy, our treasure, or our life because Christ is our joy and our treasure and our life. That is, in smaller losses, we will not grumble, and in greater losses, we will not grieve. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. But in greater losses, we will grieve, but not as those who have no hope. I need to close. There's so much here. And there's more to talk about because I've got more in this message about this. And I think we'll come back to it next week, Lord willing. But I want to say to you and I want to say to my heart in closing. If this kind of life seems impossible to you or miserable to you or slavery to you. If it makes you fearful and it makes you feel condemned. That's not the Lord. That's not the Holy Spirit. When Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, he said to him. Walk out. Philippians 3. Count all things as a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing me. And that man couldn't do it. And he went away sad. And Jesus, it says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said to his disciples, do you remember what he said? He said, this is impossible for this man. But with my father, it's totally possible. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Alberto message. He said, with God, all things are possible. Folks, Jesus is saying, this is how I save. This is what I do when I save. Jesus is saying, I'm in the business of fixing this. This idolatry that shattered the world and has blinded people to my goodness and my beauty and my joy. I came to wreck that. And boy, do I know how to wreck it good. He has what we need to live for him. Perfectly? No. Truly? Yes. I need to say that to myself right now. You have what I need to live for you. Passage after passage tells us his grace is for us. It's available to us moment by moment. As Buzz said today, day by day, he has grace for us to take up our cross and follow him. And we have to believe in his grace and his power and his mercy more than we believe in our inability. So with more to say about this, Lord willing, next week, so much more. This week, let's go for it. Today, let's believe that he can give us the power to live for him. That we can, by his grace, put everything second. Enjoy it, hate it, get rid of it, limit it, keep it. 
But keep him first. This is a miracle. But it's the miracle he died to give you and me. So let's not give up. Let's keep talking about this. He's worth it. It's what we need more than anything else. It's what we want more than anything else. I believe it. If you're in him, it's what you want more than anything else. Amen? Okay, I've gone way over. I'm, I'm going to dismiss us, but I'm going to dismiss us with a prayer, okay? In fact, Holly, can you dismiss us with a prayer? Father, as your children, um, all that is in us cries out, yes, yes. Thank you that you have made us responders to your grace. That we cry out, yes, because you loved us first. And so, God, would you search us? Would you know us? Would you test us and know our hearts? God, show us anything that's grievous to you and lead us into the way that's everlasting and do that miracle that only you can do. God, we want to throw off anything that would weight us down, that would entangle us from running hard and fast towards you, Jesus, the only one who brings us true satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment and joy. You're, you're all that does that for us, and that's what our heart cries out for us. So help us not to be satisfied with lesser things. You are all. You are all. And so do that in us because you are so good. You are so merciful, and you will not Let us be satisfied with lesser than what you died to bring us. So we trust you. We love you. In your name.